0: We have been studying our way through the life of Jesus, and I believe with all my heart that if you're a believer, even if you're not a believer, one of the most important things for you to do is to find out as quickly as possible who the real Jesus is and was. What he really said, what he really did, what he really taught when he was on the earth. Because everybody has an idea about Jesus, and everybody has an idea they'll gladly share with you about Jesus. But we all need to know for ourselves who the biblical Jesus really is. And so that's what we're studying. And when we left our story, we had Mary, pregnant with Jesus, visiting Elizabeth, her relative, who is also pregnant with her own miracle baby, who will grow to become John the Baptist. So we've got Elizabeth, we've got Mary... And it says in Scripture that when Mary enters the room pregnant with Jesus, John the Baptist inside of Elizabeth leaps for joy. Scripture says John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit even from the time he's in his mother's womb. So the Holy Spirit inside of John, inside of Mary, recognizes the presence of Jesus in the room and leaps for joy. At that moment, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and she's supernaturally empowered to recognize That Mary, her relative, is carrying the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God. She just has this awareness through the Holy Spirit inside of her. And that's where we left our story last time. Luke chapter 1. Verse 46. Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's going to be about three quarters of the way through your Bible. Luke chapter 1, verse 46. So Elizabeth has just encouraged Mary, has just said, Man, God is amazing. God is awesome. Look what he's doing in your life. Mary is encouraged. I think it's pretty safe to say that Mary is filled with the Holy Spirit because having Jesus Christ literally inside of you will have that effect on a person. I think it's safe to say that God was inside of her because literally God was inside of her. So Mary speaks out this response, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it's known in Scripture as Mary's Magnificat. And Mary is not just this amazing poet who just drops stuff like this all the time. She's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and she speaks out under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And this is what she says, starting in verse 46. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced. In God, my Savior. In your Bibles, you're going to want to underline that word Savior. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I just want you to notice this, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, recognizes Jesus before he's even born as her Savior. As her Savior. This is a key, key theological point because there are some faiths that hold that Mary was immaculate. And the term immaculate means that she basically didn't sin. She was not affected by the fall of man and she was born sinless. But what you see right here in scripture is you see Mary referring to Jesus as her savior, which implies that she needs a savior. You can't call someone your savior unless you need them to be your savior. So it's important to know that even Jesus's mother said, this child that I'm carrying is going to be my Savior, as well. In verse 48, she continues, for he, God, has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is he his name. And, and Mary is praising God because she recognizes a couple of things. She's saying, there's God, he who is mighty, and he's done great things for me. She calls herself lowly and a maidservant of God. So Mary is speaking out in literal awe of the fact that the almighty God has noticed her and blessed her. She's an absolute All that God would do that. And this is where you see Mary's humility coming to bear. She doesn't view herself as anything special. She views herself as lowly and a maidservant. And she is in absolute awe that God would notice her. It's the type of wonder and amazement that we should all have toward God. Because it's not like we're significantly less lowly than Mary was. She's probably a better person than most of us were. But we should all have that same reaction and amazement towards God. And this is on your outline. To fully appreciate our salvation, we have to understand two things. We have to understand two things. The first is who God is. And the second is who we are. You have to understand who God is. And you have to understand who we are. You have to understand that. Because if you have too low a view of God, or too high a view of yourself, your awe and wonder towards the love of God will dramatically increase. And that's why you see people who, who are convinced that they're, they're really good people and that's enough. They're like, in some ways, well, of, co- of course God loves me. I'm a, I'm a really good person. We're, we're not that different. God's good, so am I. When scripture teaches that the gulf between the goodness of God and our goodness is radical and extreme. Scripture teaches that we're born sinful Scripture teaches there's no one who even seeks after God unless God empowers them to do that. And so Mary recognizes this enormous gap and the result is praise towards God. And that's what should drive our praise is that we never get over the fact that this amazing almighty God has noticed us. He's noticed us. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, he's done something amazing in your life. He's done something amazing in your life. You were lost, but now you're found. You were dead, but now you're alive. Whoever you are, if you believe in Jesus, he's given you an eternity in his presence. An eternity in his presence. We have no less reason for wonder and amazement than Mary had. We're gonna continue in verse 50. It says, and his mercy is on those who fear him, from generation to generation. Let's underline that word, fear him. His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Throughout scripture in multiple places, but, but let's take one example. Proverbs seven. it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. This fear that we're talking about, that the Bible says is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, is, is literal fear. It's literal fear. It's not a code word for respect. It's not a code word for reverence. It's literal fear. It's having an understanding, even a small understanding of just how great and amazing God is. If you were here last week when we were watching the Louis Giglio message, this, this is the God who breathes and things like the sun come out of his mouth. It's not the God when you see him that your first reaction is like, how about a hug? It's the God when you see him, the first thing you do is put your face on the ground and pray that you're not vaporized by the difference between his glory and our sinful nature. He's an almighty God. And scripture says, li- listen, having a right view of God, having a right view of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. What the Bible is saying that the most foolish people walking the earth are the people Who don't acknowledge God for who He really is. He says that that's foolish because this Almighty God exists whether you recognize it or not. And one day everybody will recognize that He exists. And scripture says in that moment, who's going to be able to stand? Who's going to be able to stand? So the fear that Mary is talking about is a literal fear. His mercy is on those who fear him. And fear is the beginning of wisdom because when you encounter this almighty God, your immediate question becomes, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? And that question will lead you to Jesus, will lead you to the cross where you'll find mercy, you'll find forgiveness, and you will find hope. I really believe with all my heart that even if you're a into philosophy on a secular level, there cannot be any more important two questions than, is there a God? And if there is, what does he require of me? I I can't think of any questions that are more important than that. And so scripture says, beginning with a fear of the Lord is the right way to live out your life in wisdom, to have a right view of God as your starting point. So we can put this on your outlines. The fear that Mary's talking about is the fear that comes from understanding that he is God. He's God. And so what's the opposite of a fear of the Lord? What's the flip side of that? In verse 51, Mary says, he has shown strength with his arm, and you might want to underline this, he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. This verse is terrifying. It's terrifying. Because Mary's drawing a contrast. She's saying, on one hand, the beginning of wisdom is fearing God, saying, this is an almighty God. I need to listen to him. She says, the opposite of that is pride. Those who refuse to acknowledge God. Refuse to rightfully acknowledge God. And so what God is saying is, he's saying, listen, for those people who are not interested in me, I'm just going to let them run wild in their own imaginations, like infants who are out of touch with reality. The kind of people that he's talking about really are people who, I've used this illustration before, but I've seen every episode of the TV series House Ever. Every single episode. Love the show. And they always have in the show, they, they have a mystery disease, right? You know, somebody's eyeballs are exploding or something like that. And so they get out the whiteboard and they get in the room and they're like, well, what could it be? And the first guess is always lupus and it's never lupus. And so they have the whiteboard there and then they start putting stuff up and then they start smashing each other's ideas till they only have one option left. And I think the best illustration I can give when it comes to the proud is anybody who asks the big questions in life somebody who says i want to know why we're here how did the universe come to exist what's the meaning of life they ask those questions but the first thing they do is they walk up to the board they write the word god and they put a line through it and they say now let's talk and they've predetermined that god will not be a part of the conversation cannot be the answer a refusal to acknowledge and recognize God. And what scripture says is, is he says, God says, those people, all right, go for it. Have fun. Knock, knock yourself out. Knock yourself out. And, and if you're rational and you really look, you really see this play out in some of the biggest areas of life. We've talked about this before. that The theories for our origins in the universe become increasingly elaborate and more imaginative. And I I would contend more ridiculous. Um, And what's happening is God is just saying, go for it. Go nuts in your imagination. Come up with another explanation other than God. And the ultimate reality is that the only answers you're going to come with are soon going to start getting more and more ridiculous. And they actually require, I believe, more faith than believing in God. So it's a terrifying thing to have the God of the universe say, you know what, you're determined not to know me. I'm done revealing myself to you. Go have fun with your imagination. And that's what Mary's Magnificat is saying. Those who are proud, who refuse to acknowledge God, God says, I've scattered them in their own imaginations. In in Hebrews, it talks about the heavens, the skies at night, and, and it basically says, listen, wherever you are in the world, whatever your culture is, whatever your heritage is, whether you've heard the gospel or not, Paul says, all you gotta do is look up at night. And there is God. There is God. And those who revere God, who fear God, look at that and say, wow, there is a God. There is something bigger and stronger than me. And God would say, listen, those who don't fear God refuse to acknowledge that and instead worship man-made objects and bring God down to their size, scattered in the imaginations of their hearts. Biblically speaking, if you don't have it yet, pride is refusing to rightfully acknowledge God. That's a terrifying idea. So we should fear God because it's the beginning of wisdom. In verse 52, Mary continues, he has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. And this is a a description of God's economy. Up up to this point, it was all about who, who can accrue the most wealth Whoever had the most wealth must be the most blessed. And what Mary is saying, this this is what you've done. This is what you've come to do. You've taken the lowly. You've taken the humble. And you've made them the most important. And she's speaking about herself. And she's saying, you started with me. You took someone lowly. And you gave them a responsibility that they did not deserve. You, You put the Son of God inside of me. And I don't deserve that but you're bringing a whole new economy to bear on the earth. And we'll read that later on in the teachings of Jesus where Jesus says, if you want to be the greatest in heaven, be the least on earth. Be the servant of all. And Mary's praising God because she says, "You're, you're flipping everything on its head. You're bringing a whole new economy to bear. Verse 54, verse 53, I'm sorry. She says, he has filled the hungry, those who seek God, with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. And I just want to let you know, she's not talking about literal wealth. Jesus isn't like a communist or something crazy like that where he hates rich people. What she's saying is, those who seek you, who recognize their need for you, who are hungry for you, you filled them. But the rich, those who don't think they need you, those who think they have all they need, you sent them away hungry. You didn't reveal yourself to them. Verse 54 He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her, Elizabeth, about three months and then returned to her house. Mary was overjoyed because she counted herself among the lowly, she counted herself among the hungry whom God had satisfied. And she recognized that an almighty God was interacting with her and blessing her in a way that defied belief. It was amazing. And she loved Jesus for it. And so the same reasons that Mary burst out into praise 2,000 years ago are the same reasons we should burst out into praise today. Because God has done great things for us and he has regarded our lowly state where we are right now. And he's come to us. Continuing in verse 57, it says, Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, which was standard cultural practice for all Jewish boys, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who's called by this name, John. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. Because the idea was your firstborn would be named a lot of the times after the father. So they're saying, uh, he's Zacharias and you're going to name him John? Are Are you sure? They're they're thinking like, this is something Elizabeth is doing to exploit the fact that he can't speak. She's going with the name that she really wants. So they're making signs from being like, are you sure? Is she just trying to pull the wool over your eyes, basically? So remember, Zacharias had received a visitation from the angel Gabriel, who had told him, listen, your wife who's been barren, her whole life is going to give birth to a son. But he, he hadn't believed that this was possible, so the angel struck him dumb, made him a mute. He couldn't speak. And says, you're going to stay this way till the promise is fulfilled. Till it all comes true. But if you notice, it says that they made signs to Zacharias. Which is pretty interesting. So what does that tell us? It tells us that he wasn't only mute. He was also deaf as well. Because they didn't speak to him. They made signs to him. And last time we talked about how, how God was protecting Zacharias. Because his issue was he was speaking doubt. He's speaking doubt. And so God says, okay, to stop you from speaking doubt, I'll just make you able not to speak at all. But he does something else. He makes him deaf. And why, why, why does he do that? Why does he do that? I, I would suggest that the reason is he doesn't want Zacharias hearing doubt either. Because he comes out, he can't speak. Everybody knows he's had an encounter with an angel. But it's still kind of crazy when he says, hey, my barren old wife, we're having a kid. You're invited to the party. They're still thinking, this poor guy's. He's seen an angel, you know, who knows what the angel did to him. Uh, I mean, this guy's probably just not thinking on the level. And, and don't forget that they go around saying, Elizabeth is pregnant. It's not like all of a sudden she's like, look at this. No, it's like first two months, it's probably, probably not a whole lot to see. So there's probably a bunch of people all over town saying, this is crazy. Like, like, she really thinks that she's pregnant. She really thinks she's pregnant. And so what happens is is God says, "You know what? You don't need to hear that. All you need to know is that I've given you a promise. Don't speak out in doubt. Don't listen to doubt. All I'm going to let you think about for the next 9 months is this promise. It's going to be the last thing that you hear is the angel Gabriel giving you this promise that God's going to do something amazing in your family." And this is a huge principle because we know it's better to remain silent than to speak doubt, but We also build faith by removing outside voices of doubt. Removing outside voices of doubt. And and I'm not saying that you should quit your job because there's people who don't believe in Jesus at your job. But what I'm saying is in the areas where you get to choose who you fellowship with, I want to encourage you to fellowship with people who build your faith rather than tear it down. Because we all need that. We all need that. And the greatest danger that we all face as believers when it comes to faith isn't actually the people at work who don't believe in God. The greatest danger is other believers who believe in God, but don't believe God. Don't believe God. And we all know people like that, don't we? Where we say, man, I got this promise in God's word, I'm believing for it. And they're like, wow. You know, like that's a really cool Bible story, but I, I don't know that God like really does that stuff i i just hate to see you disappointed i just hate to see you get your hopes up and we all know people like that and i want to encourage you as hard as it might be you you might need to seriously limit the amount of time you spend with people like that who tear down your faith you need to make sure that the believers that you're hanging out with build your faith and leave you with a greater confidence in god not a lower confidence in god It's having the attitude that says, okay, you know, you you might not believe that, but I'm chasing everything God has for me. And I don't have time for the voice of doubt. I only have time for the voice of faith. I encourage you to really think about who you're fellowshipping with and whether they're building your faith or tearing it down. So after nine months of not being able to talk, I think it's safe to say that Zacharias has learned his lesson. I would say that a fear of the Lord has probably returned to Zacharias. Over these nine months, a fear of the Lord has returned. And so here's what you notice is God really did three things for Zacharias. He made it impossible for him to speak doubt. He made it impossible for him to hear doubt. And he restored to him a fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. And I'm sure that he got very quickly to the place where he said, I probably should have just believed the angel. Yeah. Yeah. I probably should have believed the angel. And that's why when they say to him, and they make signs, and they say, do you really want to name this kid John? It says this, no hesitation, verse 63, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, his name is John. No discussion. It's John. He's learned his lesson by now. And so they all marveled. Everybody's like, God is doing something here. And I love this, verse 64. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. He spoke, praising God. And I don't think that Zacharias is most excited about being able to speak again. I don't think he's walking around going, la, 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 la. I think what's hitting Zacharias is this wave of emotion where it suddenly all comes together, and suddenly he's back in the temple, Gabriel standing in front of him again, Every word that he heard promised from God is flooding through his mind. And now he's standing there and he's saying, I, I am looking at my own, with my own eyes, at the fulfillment of God's promise. Here it is. Exactly like he said. Exactly like he said. And there's this wave of emotion that just comes over Zacharias. And he's overwhelmed by the goodness of God. And he had to be thinking things like, I, I, I doubted and he did it anyway. He did it anyway. The scripture says, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He's overtaken by the emotion of the moment and what God has done for him. We all face this situation over and over and over again in our lives. We have the, the promises of God in his word, and sometimes God speaks directly to us, and many of us have received specific promises from God. Maybe you've received a promise that this is something God wants to do in your life. Maybe you've received a promise about your kids, about a family, about a future husband or a future wife, about a job, about what God can free you from. You know God's promised it to you. And the moment you received that promise was, was good, even though it seemed unrealistic, it seemed like a, like a pipe dream. You know that God always keeps his promises. He's perfectly faithful. He's batting 100% every single time. He's got a perfect, perfect track record. And so when, not if, when, when his promise is fulfilled, we'll, we'll praise him and we'll celebrate just like Zacharias did. That's not really the hard part, is it? The hard part isn't the promise. The hard part isn't the euphoria of, I got this word from God, and this is what he's going to do in my life. And the hard part isn't, God kept his promise. This is amazing. I'm going to tell everybody. The hard part is the gap in between those two places. And This is on your outline. The challenge for us is living and speaking in faith between the moment we receive the promise and the moment the promise is fulfilled. That's the hard part, isn't it? Living and speaking in faith over here, somewhere between receiving the promise and seeing the promise fulfilled. Do you remember when Gabriel visited Mary, he, he said, rejoice, and the reason he gives is, for the Lord is with you. He doesn't say, rejoice, I'm here to deliver a step-by-step plan for you of how God is gonna do all this. Just says, listen, you're, you're carrying the son of God, he's gonna do great things through you great things are going to be done. Rejoice, God is with you. What else? That's it. That's it. And I've never heard of anybody who said, man, God gave me this promise that I was going to, uh, I was going to meet my husband one day and then it was amazing. He said, go down to the Coquitlam Center bus terminal number 374 at 2.45 p.m. Blue baseball cap. That's him. It never ever happens that way, does it? God's like, hey, I got a word for you. I'm going to bless you. I want to give you a godly husband. Awesome. What else? That's it. That's it. That's all you need to know for right now. Hold on to that. Where God says, hey, I just want you to know I'm going to take care of you financially. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you a good life. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, I I told you everything you need to know. That's all you need to know for now. Just believe me. I'm going to do it you find yourself immediately in the place between receiving the promise which you're thankful for and the time that the promise is fulfilled and you're stuck in the middle. That's where most people give up, isn't it? Somewhere in between the two. Somewhere in between the two. Zacharias reminds us how the story ends when we get a promise from God. It ends every single time with God keeping his promise with us in awe of how he did it, and 99% of the time with us saying, I never would have thought he would do it that way. I couldn't have written this out. I couldn't have dreamed this up. Couldn't have come up with this myself. Because he's perfectly faithful every single time. He's perfectly faithful. He's gonna do it in your life. He's gonna do it in my life. And whatever you're praying about right now, I don't have any insight for you on how he's going to do it. I don't know. I just know he's going to do it because he's faithful. You've experienced his faithfulness. So have I. That's enough. God says that's enough. That's all you need to know for right now. So what do we do? What do we do while while we're in this place in the middle? I think there's a couple of things we do. One of them is I think we count our blessings. And what I mean is we count what God has already done. You know, we, we lose heart and we get fearful when we act like this is the first thing God's ever promised me. So I don't know if he's gonna do it. This is the first thing God's ever done for me. I don't know if he's gonna keep his promise. And then you begin to look back on your life and you begin to say, well, wait, but he, but he did this. And when I was facing this situation, he did this. And when I was facing this challenge, he did this. He did this, he did this, he did this. He did this. And you keep a record of those things and you start to say, Logic says, he'll do this too. He'll do this too. And the other thing we do is we set our heart on praising God in advance for the outcome. We set our heart on praising him in advance for the outcome. We've got the promise, and most of us can muster the faith to believe that he's gonna do it. We just lose heart because we don't get the details of the how. And so when you're in that space in between that's when you just begin to thank God that you know where this is going. God, I don't I don't know how you're going to do it, but I know you're going to do it. I know you're going to do it. That much is not in doubt. And you focus your energy and your praise and your emotions on that. You don't focus your emotions on how, 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 how are you going to How is it possible? How could you possibly just I know you're going to do it. I know you're going to do it. And that's how you make it through. And when other people say, say how, have you noticed that that's a, that's a favorite question of other people as well, is well, how? Well, I got this promise from God, he's gonna do this, how? I wanna encourage you to get comfortable answering that question with, I don't know. I don't know. I just know he's gonna do it. Get comfortable with, I don't know. I just know he's gonna do it because he's God and he's always been faithful And he always will be faithful. Verse 65 says, Then fear came on all who dwelt around them. And this is the same kind of fear that Mary spoke about in her Magnificat. It's the fear that comes on everybody when they suddenly realize this this is God. This is God. We've had a visitation from heaven in our town to people we know. And God has done a miracle here in our midst. And suddenly everybody remembers He's God. He's real. And I think what we lose when we read this is is we forget where we are in terms of biblical history. We're on the tail end of 400 years of silence between the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament. God hasn't been doing stuff like this for hundreds of years. He hasn't been making the barren pregnant. This is a major real God sighting, and, and everybody is suddenly realizing, well, that this God that we heard about from our fathers and our grandfathers, he's real. He's alive, and he's doing stuff here and now. And that fear comes over them as they realize, this is God that we're dealing with. This is God that we're dealing with, and he's here. And all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea, and all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, what kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him, the child, John. Verse 67, now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of that going around at this time, in case you haven't noticed that. Um, So Zacharias is now filled with the Holy Spirit, and he speaks out as well, under the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And he prophesies, saying, verse 68, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. So Zacharias is speaking out praise because he says the promise that God made to Abraham thousands of years ago He's keeping it and he's doing it right now. And and what's the promise? Verse 74, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So the promise was that one day God would send a savior who would deal with the issue of sin so that people would not have to fear the wrath of God. He would deal with the issue of sin. He would make them his own. He would bring them into fellowship. That's the promise that God had made. And Zacharias is speaking out prophetically that God is doing that right now. And then he begins to prophesy about his own son, John, who's given a mandate to prepare people for the first coming of Christ. And here's what's interesting. I believe that one of the primary tasks of the church today is to prepare people for the second coming of Christ. John's job was to go before Jesus and let him know Jesus is coming, repent, he's coming. Scripture tells us that there's going to be a second coming of Christ, and then it's going to be done. And part of the church's job is to let people know there's not an infinite amount of time. He's coming back again, and we need to be ready. And so we're called to the same mandate that John was. In verse 76, he's speaking about John prophetically. And he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. John's mandate is simply this. It's the gospel. John's mandate is the gospel. And we're called to very simply let people know that unless they reject it, Jesus has died for them as well and he's made a way for them to be at peace with God, to know God, to have fellowship with God. And I want to encourage you with this. Always remember that when it comes to sharing the gospel, our success is not based on anybody's response. Our success is based on sharing the gospel. Do you know that there's not a single verse in the Bible where God says, share the gospel, try to average at least a 30% success rate. He doesn't do that. And that's why some of the greatest missionaries in history that we admire were terrible failures when it came to success rate. And we forget that the giants of Scripture, whose stories we read where they went and thousands were saved, also had towns where they went to and they beat them and threw them out the city. Now in the eyes of Jesus, do you believe that God viewed the city where they saved thousands as a success, but he viewed the city where they beat him and threw him out as a failure? I think God viewed it all as success because the truth is that our part in sharing the gospel ends at sharing the gospel. There's nothing we can do to make people respond. And I think that for a lot of us, the reason we're so afraid to do it is because we believe that it all rests on us and not on the power of God. We believe that we've got to have just the right pitch, just the right words. And, and God just says, just go do it. Tell people what I've done for you. Just tell them. Don't be afraid. Just do it. And so, even in my life, I'm, I'm trying to recalibrate this whole idea and, and say, listen, if you share with somebody and they spit in your face, you're a success in the eyes of Jesus because you did what he asked you to do. You were obedient. But in our viewpoint, we don't view obedience as success, we view success as success, right? Did I close? is what we really wonder. And so John is given this mandate. He just is told, you're going to preach the gospel. You're going to prepare the way for Jesus. He doesn't even tell him whether it's going to work or not. He doesn't say how many are going to be saved. John the Baptist, greatest man who ever lived, ended his life in a way that a lot of people might consider a failure because his life was ended for him. He ends up beheaded. It's not a good day of sharing the gospel when it ends that way. But he's considered the greatest man outside of Jesus Christ who ever lived because he was obedient. We're going to study him more in coming weeks, but you notice with John, he doesn't stray. He doesn't wander. He doesn't have this wild period where he goes away. He's just faithful. He does what he's asked to do by the Lord. So always remember the response of others to the gospel is God's business. Our job is to be light. And reveal Jesus. And the rest is up to him. The rest is up to him. Living missionally, and we're going to end with this. Living missionly is this simple idea of living on mission all the time. The truth is a disciple never clocks out. A disciple doesn't keep hours. We love to compartmentalize our lives, especially if you're a man. You love to compartmentalize. It's just a gift that we have. We can compartmentalize everything and behave in very irrational ways because we can compartmentalize. So when it comes to our faith, living missionally means realizing that above everything else in your life, your identity is a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's as much a part of your identity as being a human is a part of your identity. You don't lie down in bed and say, oh, Thank God I can take a break from being human and sleep for a while. You're just a human all the time. And the same thing is true when it comes to being a disciple. I've been so challenged recently by by the question of, am I a disciple during certain hours, but not at certain other hours? And so I want to challenge you with this thought. Are there times in your life when you clock out as a disciple? Is it maybe work? You go into work and you say, you know, work is work. Work is Paying the bills, taking care of business. I'm not really a disciple during that time. I'm not on. I put, put the switch to standby. It, what does it look like in your marriage? Do we maybe say, man, I want to pursue Christ. I want to be like Christ. Um, and I'm a disciple of Christ. But, you know, home is where you get to really be yourself. So um, I don't really have to be a disciple there. I don't really have to try and show Jesus to my spouse because I can clock out when I'm at home. I can finally relax. Or maybe it's with family. Maybe it's with family. Maybe it's at school. And I just want us to challenge ourselves with that simple question. Are we living missionally? Are we living on mission? Understanding that we're God's ambassadors all the time. We're his disciples all the time. It's who we are. We are Jesus to the world that he's put us in. And we're called to be Jesus all the time in every situation. And it shouldn't even be a burden for us. It should flow naturally out of us. So we're going to spend some time processing that challenge right now. And some other challenges we had from the word today are simply, are we, are we walking in the fear of the Lord today? Are we walking in the fear of the Lord? Are we... Are we processing the biggest questions in our lives, the biggest decisions, the biggest challenges without God? Without God? If so, I want to encourage us. Let's return to a fear of the Lord. Let's return to a fear of the Lord. Is there a job decision, a life decision, a relationship decision that that is occupying your thoughts But if you're honest, you'd say, man, God isn't even in the conversation in my mind. I haven't consulted him. I haven't invited him in. If that's true, would you fear the Lord this morning and bring those things to God today? Just ask him to speak to you. Just say, God, this is what's going on in my life. Would you speak to me? Would you meet me where I'm at? Are we holding on to the promises of God and faith? Not speaking doubt. Not being overwhelmed by how is he going to do it? How could it be possible? I just don't see a way. Maybe today you need to spend some time just saying, I I don't know. God, I don't know how you're going to do it. But I'm okay with that. Because I've got a promise from you. I'm okay with that. Because you've always kept your promises. You always will. You always do. God, I'm okay with not knowing the how. I've got a promise from you. And today I praise you. Because the day is coming when I'll praise you for finishing what you started. And for keeping your promise. You know that when we get to heaven one day, the reason we'll praise forever is because we'll be celebrating the fact that God kept his promise. And we arrived in his presence. And we're going to be overwhelmed one day by that emotion when we arrive in his presence that he did it. He did it exactly like he said he would. And, and here we are. And There's Jesus. I can't imagine what that moment's going to be like. I can't imagine what that's going to be like. So if you would, would you just bow your head and close your eyes for a moment? And I want to ask if any of those issues brought up by God's word today are speaking to you in a in a very personal way. Maybe you're thinking, I I just need to give some things to God today. I need to invite him in. I need to trust him. I need to let go of some things. I need to let go of some control. Just spend a minute allowing the Holy Spirit to illuminate those things in your life.